Well, four weeks ago, we began a two-part series on sexual temptation. And the rains came down and the floods came up. And uh, we barely got across the highway. And many of you probably couldn't have made it that night had you wanted to. And so I'm a little bit frustrated that it's been so long ago and uh, that uh, the two halves are separated by so much. And so I'm, I'm struggling with just how to do this tonight in 45 minutes or so. But what, what my plan is, is to uh, present to you, at least in nugget form, ten pitfalls for leaders that lead to sexual uh, falling or sexual failure, sexual sin. And then focus tonight, hopefully, on the protections. In other words, the, the two halves of the message were uh, leadership and sexual temptation, pitfalls and protections. And uh, the pitfalls is what we focused on for 45 minutes four weeks ago. And then uh, the protections is what I want to focus on tonight. That is guidelines and things that the Bible commends to us that would help us avoid uh, yielding to sexual temptation. So that's that's my plan tonight. And I hope I hope we can do it in the time allotted. Let me provide another a little framework here for what we're doing. I acknowledge that the incentive for doing this is the publicity that some of our media as well as other leaders have gotten in their sexual exploits. And it just seems as though it is a topic that needs to be addressed and one that is near enough to affect any Christian leader. And so I've come at it from the leadership angle, though I think the principles I'm going to be talking about tonight, by and large, will apply right across the board to uh, human beings who have any sexual drives or see the connection in their lives between the kinds of things in the lives of leaders and their own lives which might cause sexual trouble. And perhaps one other thing I could say by way of preface is that while everything I have to say tonight is a warning against sexual abuses and sins, I hope I've said enough over the years here that I don't come across as Victorian in the sense that sex in itself is bad. It is good. God made it, and he made it to be enjoyed and used in marriage only. And that's the danger we're talking about, the danger of of falling into sexual fornication before marriage or sexual adultery after marriage. Those are the main things I have in, in mind when I think of temptation. But please don't construe me to think that the reality of sexuality is an evil thing. It is a beautiful and profoundly good thing made by God which Jesus never enjoyed. I think that's so important to say because a life of singleness is today viewed by some. I got this letter. I I read it to you some years ago, I think. No, it was back when I wrote that editorial about condom advertisements in the newspaper. And I got this letter from a guy and said, look, I don't intend to get married. And you're crazy if you think I'm going to deny myself the pleasures of sexuality. As though self-fulfillment, I mean, if God's gave me that urge, 
and I'm not married, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy to think that I'm not going to enjoy that urge. That's, that's the mentality that's out there uh, today. And it is dead wrong. I lost my train of thought there. I was going to make something of that. Jesus, thank you. You're listening better than I am. Jesus did not experience that, quote, fulfillment. He was chaste and he was single. And therefore, anybody that tells me you can't have a fulfilling life without having sexual intercourse, I just point them straight to Jesus and I say, are you really willing to say that this man of all men was somehow not a complete person? Okay, enough by way of preface. Pitfall number one, those of you who are here, was called falling in love with the present world. So I've, I've listed the, the pitfall of the leader, and then what I have printed on here is the protection, and not any text regarding the pitfall itself. But I, I quoted last time, for Demas... In love with this present world has deserted me, Paul says, and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, a man who had been faithful and working with Paul in the missionary labor, now has fallen in love with the world and has deserted Paul as he writes this letter, 2 Timothy, at the end of his life. Now, what should we do in response to the danger of falling in love with the present world? Think hard about the biblical warnings against love for the world. For example, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world passes away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, many of my ten protections involve this word think or something like it. And I'm amazed, really, as I, as I walk through the scriptures, how much the Bible depends upon our laying up the word, meditating on the word, reflecting and chewing and remembering the word, because it's the word that has power. So think about this biblical truth that it's dangerous to love the world. By the way, if, if you want to have any of this in writing, it's all on a disc in Carol's box and it'll be in the files next Sunday. So... Uh, you don't need to worry yourself with taking notes. Think hard. If you have a question, raise your hand and it'll, it'll all be available to you in the file cabinet next Sunday. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Demas, falling in love with the world, should have stopped on his way to Thessalonica and just pondered. These two texts or something like them in his experience and see whether or not it is smart to go ahead after the world. Here's the positive side of this. Think hard about the infinitely superior taste of the clear mountain springs of God's approval and fellowship and beauty. Thou hast put more joy in my heart than they have 
when their grain and wine abound. Now, I know that when a kid is growing up in school, or even when um, a a young adult or a a middle-aged adult is in the marketplace working, and somehow or other it comes out that he does not engage in certain kinds of of pleasures, that, that the world will try to cast his life in the mold of a killjoy life, a morose and boring and mundane life. And therefore, we need to meditate on this to see whether we agree with the psalmist here. Thou hast put more joy in my heart than they have at their parties. That's the point here. When their grain, their their bread and food and fancy rolls and, and their cocktails abound. Really, is the happy hour the happiest place on earth? I doubt it. I've never been to one. But I can guess that my life, with what I do, and the challenges that lie before me, and the joy I get out of my work, and my family, and you people, I just can't imagine anybody sipping a cocktail saying to me, how can you get joy out of life unless you do this? I can't even imagine it. Well, you need to find words to say that when people say, well, your life must be a total drag. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, when all is said and done, and you try to measure whether the Christian or the the, uh, secular person is having the more fun, It really doesn't matter, does it? Because there's going to come a day when they're lying in Northwestern Hospital with cancer and three months to live and all the cocktails in the world won't make the least bit of difference except to torment the conscience. One thing will matter then, whether there's forgiveness of sin and whether we've walked with the Lord. So we do have such a great positive, infinitely superior taste of a clear mountain spring of God's approval and fellowship and beauty that the world cannot know. And we need to think about that as well as the dangers of loving the world. That's that's protection number one against the pitfall of falling in love with the present world, which many leaders are prone to do because so much of the world is brought their way. Number two pit, the second pitfall. Loss of horror at offending the majesty of God's holiness through sin. That's a common pitfall that leaders fall prey to. The loss of horror at offending the majesty of God's holiness because there is this growing temptation as the crowds build and the ears are itching that they try to please people by not talking about holiness. And the protection I command is meditate on the biblical truth that all our acts are acts toward God and not just acts toward man. Man Man-centered society. So that even those who speak of sin in the newspaper or on television, and it's a common word, Everybody uses the word sin one way or the other, but it is rare to hear the word sin used in a God-centered way. 
And I referred to David, you remember, and his sin against Bathsheba. And when God sent Nathan to indict David, you remember, he did not point out the sanctity of marriage, nor did he point out the sanctity of life. He pointed out the honor of God and said, why have you despised God? You won't read that in the newspaper. When you read about a a politician's hanky-panky or something, you won't read anybody saying, why has he despised his maker? That's left for the faithful and the people of God to say. And if we are going to be protected from losing the horror of offending God through sin, we must meditate on the fact that all of our acts are acts towards God and not just toward man. Here's the way David spoke. Against thee, and thee only, have I sinned. And then, continuing this protection, we must meditate on this fact that God is so high and holy and pure that he will not countenance the slightest sin, but hates it with omnipotent hatred. But he loveth him that followeth after righteousness. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. And we need to meditate on the fact that the holiness of God is the most valuable treasure in the universe. This is the positive side now. The most valuable treasure in the universe and the very deepest of delights to those whose way is pure. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So the two things, the incredible horror of coming unto the hatred of God through persisting in sin, and the incredible beauty of the holiness of God when you walk in it, delight in it. And so we must avoid the temptation to regard our acts as somehow merely acts against men, when in fact all sin is first and foremost an insult and offense against God. And if you cultivate that, you cultivate a radical God-centeredness, so that all your dating or all your relationship with the women in your office or the men in your office is under the watchful eye of God. And every touch, every conversation is related to God in his holiness. Then it will make a difference. There will be a protection there. The third um, pitfall for leaders, is a sense of immunity from accountability and authority. And we spoke about how as a a leader gets more and more power and more and more people look to him for leadership, he sort of often can rise above the sense that he is accountable to anybody or any authority. And the danger in that is that you tend to to rise above the need to give any account of your moral life as as well. And of course, it, it would be obvious that the protection against this, to submit yourself in whatever place you are, that you should be submitted to somebody, should be under somebody's accountability 
and authority to the counsel of biblically-minded, spiritual-wise advisors. Without counsel, plans go wrong. And I thought of another text that I probably should have included here. In the New Testament, the highest authority in the church is the elder. And Paul never, so far as we know, said that there should be only one elder in the church. Paul always appointed elders. And in 1 Timothy 5, there was a procedure for holding elders accountable and rebuking them in public so that the highest level of authority has a built-in procedure in the New Testament for holding it accountable and bringing it before public censure if it persists in sin. Of course, there is a guard against abusing elders. It says, don't bring a charge against an elder except with two or three witnesses so that just nobody can bring misery to the life of the elder. But when there is evidence that there's sin in this man's life, at the highest level, he is not immune from a New Testament standpoint from being held accountable. Number four, pitfall number four, succumbing to itching ears as love, this must be for, love for truth evaporates. And we discussed how in order to please itching ears that Paul said would arise in the last day, many leaders start to sort of shave the truth. They don't deal with hard doctrines in the pulpit, let alone on TV. No way. Don't get any money talking about predestination on TV. Carving the complexity of moral issues and theological issues. I did a, a TV interview, first one I've ever done. And I don't know if I'll ever do another one, but I might. It was on the Joy program on uh, what station? What network? Tell me a Christian network, not CBN. Trinity. On Trinity Network. And... Uh, and so, this is big lights, three big cameras about the size of an elephant around you. And, uh, and I was sitting there on the couch, and he was sitting there on the couch, interviewing me about desiring God. Everything went boom, 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 boom. Ten minutes, cut off. Here, we're going to let her sing. And then, boom, we get ten more minutes, boom, boom, boom. And then we're going to cut off, and she'll sing another. And ten more minutes, boom, boom, boom. And then Bill Bright has his four minutes. It is so clear to me that this medium does not lend itself to the full orb discussion of truth. It is an ad-oriented medium. You, you can give ads for your book. You can give an ad for predestination, <laughs> but you can't discuss it. Now, there may be a way. In fact, I was riding on the airplane back from California, and I read in there about a man on... I forgot his name now. And he has a program, and it's said that the program is laughed at by the critics because it's just uh, primetime intellectualism, they say. Now, you'll help me with this afterwards. But evidently, he tries to do something more substantial. But there is something about the medium that controls the message and tends to cause it to be carved and fit in between the commercials so that you can... Uh, get it out there so that it'll be pleasing and people will send in their support or buy your product. Well, how do we, how do we militate against succumbing to itching ears? Cultivate a love for truth even in its smallest details 
and turn a deaf ear to the desires of men to have their ears scratched with vague moralisms that massage, I don't know if that's the way you spell massage, them in their sin. Cultivate a love for truth even in the smallest details and turn a deaf ear to the desires of men who just want to be massaged. He who is faithful in very little will be faithful also in much. And he who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. And therefore, leaders need to take heed that big scandals usually originate with little fudgings of the truth. Well, I told you the illustration that I heard in Singapore of a third world person who was fed up with an international evangelist, and it was not Billy Graham, who has been remarkably clean throughout the years. He was fed up with him because he gathered his counselors together after the first night of the crusade and laid into them with criticism because they didn't watch for hands, even though he had said, every eye will be closed. Little thing, just a little thing. Every eye closed, every head bows, but not my counselors. They're not in the every. Little things grow and grow and grow until you can justify almost anything for the cause. Teacher said to Jesus, we know that you are true and care for no man. For you do not regard the position of men, but truly teach Literally, in truth, teach the way of God. You see the correspondence between truth and caring for no man here? Jesus did not play to the audience. He didn't, he didn't scratch itching ears. He spoke the truth. And let the chips fall where they would. And so I think we need to cultivate a love for truth and turn a deaf ear to itching Ears that want to be scratched. The fifth pitfall for leaders. I'm forgetting that on some of these, I'm not making explicit how it relates to sexual temptation here. Let me try here to make plain. When the mindset is cultivated that you can fudge in order to scratch an itch. That has immediate moral implications. If you can fudge on the truth to scratch an itch, you can fudge on morality to scratch an itch. And the sexual itch is the strongest itch in the human body. Now, the fifth pitfall is a vanishing attention to Scripture. And here I have in mind mainly the use made of Scripture in ministry and how stories and social analyses and psychological investigations begin to eliminate explicit dealing with the Word of God in messages so that the Word in all of its specificity and power begins to become clouded and you replace slogans and catchphrases and generalities for the pointed sword of the Word. That's what makes it so easy for preachers sometimes to fall into sin because they've blunted their own 
understanding of Scripture by the way they use it. Give yourself untiringly, I recommend, to the study and the meditation and the memorization of Scripture. Strive to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word. Strive to handle the Word rightly. It doesn't come easily to handle the Bible rightly. We very naturally uh, misconstrue Scripture and twist it. Second Peter, you remember, said, warning, he said, Paul has written many things hard to understand, which the unlearned and uninitiated twist to their own destruction, like they do the other scriptures. It is so easy. You must work to present yourself acceptable to God, rightly handling the word of God. On his law, he meditates day and night. Take up a habit like this. A little piece of paper I carry around, not always, but a lot, a verse from my devotions in the morning so that when my memory fails, I try to memorize a little something fresh for each day and just like a spiritual lozenge under the tongue of my heart. This is kind of the juices of God's power kind of keep seeping down during the day. Well, my memory isn't all that good, so I carry it around Psalm 56, 8. Thou hast taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, for God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Write something like that down and take it with you during the day. Your memory is probably not that much better than mine, although I do have a bad memory. So it may well be. So stick it, write it down and stick it in your purse or in your pocket. And during the day, pull it out ten times. Read it again and let it just be there. The Word of God has power. It has power. I've talked to people recently who are engaged in, in deliverance ministries and in exorcisms. And is, it's just so simple. One thing has power against the world. Why? Because... Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. One thing sanctifies, purifies, and keeps free from sexual temptation, and that's the word of God. So, don't let it vanish. Rather, give yourself to study, meditation, and memorization. The sixth pitfall is disregard for the spiritual good of the leader's followers. In other words, as, as a leader sort of rises and becomes more and more distant from his followers out there in either TV land or in his big church, it is so easy for there to become a kind of emotional distancing in which he doesn't really care what happens to those people as long as he can keep writing his books or earning his money or giving his lectures or whatever a leader is aspiring to do. And that is a great, great pitfall. Now, the way that relates to sexual temptation is this. If a leader falls into sin, according to the Old Testament pattern of the kings, his people almost always are jeopardized. The sins of Jeroboam and those which Jeroboam caused the people to sin. Again and again you read it. Which means that if a pastor or a personality 
falls into sin, very likely it will jeopardize the purity of some of his followers. Now, if he doesn't love his followers, he won't care about that. And the danger of his people falling into sin through his sin will cease to be an incentive towards purity. But if he loves his people, if he doesn't want them to sin, then he will do all the more to protect himself from sinning because that will cause them, some of them, to stumble. What should we do? Labor in prayer and caring to stir up your heart to love all your people. Maybe a small group that you relate to, a group of people in the office, a family, or you may have other leadership responsibilities. There's a beautiful prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love toward one another and to all men. When I put the word caring here, I had something in mind. This is prayer right here. I have in mind uh, stir up one another to love and good works. But more than that, I think every pastor... At one time or another, and no doubt it would apply, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Every pastor from time to time and every leader in, in a broader sphere from time to time probably deals with a crisis of conscience as to whether he really cares for his people. And you probably feel that about your children sometimes. Do I love these children? Or a small group. Do I really care about this group that I lead? Or am I just going through motions? And it's very hard to take the onion of your personality, of your motives, and start peeling it away, looking for some genuine love. You want to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And introspection usually winds up in a dead-end street. And that's why what I mean by caring on that other sheet, give yourself to praying and caring at this. More love can be born in your heart than you can imagine through the prayerful exercise of the discipline of doing what love requires. Now, I say prayerful discipline because I don't want to make hypocrites out of us. I don't want us to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter whether I feel any love for my people. Just go ahead and do the things you're supposed to do anyway. I wrote a whole book against that particular view. What I mean by prayerful discipline is that when you don't feel a particular affection for the person you should call on the phone or write the letter or go to visit or rebuke or encourage, what you do is you say to yourself, Lord, I don't know my own heart. Cleanse me of hidden sins. Fill me with your spirit. Give me a heart after Christ. I'm going to do it by the power that you've put within me. And please, create in the process an affection for that person. And I'll tell you, it happens again and again and again. And so, I don't think it's valid to say, well, I don't feel love for my people, so it doesn't matter whether I have any love for my people. I'll just go on about my business and fall prey to that great pitfall of ceasing to have any love for the people in your charge. The seventh pitfall we spoke of was disregard for the biblical mystery of marriage. 
Now, the biblical mystery of marriage is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, where Paul quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he stops and he comments. This is a great mystery, and I take it to mean Christ and the church. Now, what's he saying? What is the mystery of marriage? The mystery of marriage is that unbeknownst to many, many people and unrevealed for many generations, God's intention in creating male and female in marriage was to give a drama and a parable to the world of how he relates to his people or how Christ relates to the church. This gives an incredible dignity to marriage. It gives such a high calling to a husband and wife. And we have such low views of marriage today that are so easily jeopardized. We think maybe it's just a means of personal fulfillment. I need some sexual release and she needs some sexual relief. Or I need a good buddy and she needs a good buddy. Or just kind of personal self-fulfillment. Very few people, including Christians, realize that the purpose for marriage is to image forth before the world of how Christ and his church relate to each other. And that's why I said four weeks ago that adultery is the same as casting Jesus Christ in the lead role of an X-rated movie. Now, can you put that together? If marriage is intended to be a drama, a motion picture on public display of how Christ relates to his bride, then adultery is the same as casting Christ in the lead role of an X-rated movie. And that is horrendous. And so to lose a sense of the high and holy mystery of marriage is to make it easier for yourself to mistreat marriage and to commit adultery. The protection, remind yourself repeatedly that your marriage is a living drama of Christ's relation to the church. Let your thoughts about your wife or husband rise from the ordinary to the extraordinary by faith in the truth of Ephesians 5.32. You know, the only way your life is ennobled is by meditation on noble views of your life. The only way that your life is ennobled and enlarged and dignified and beautified is by meditation on the views of your marriage that are high and holy and beautiful and noble and dignified. If you never think about it, if you never take a truth like Ephesians 5.32 and meditate on it for a week, then what you'll do is absorb the view of marriage on television. You have no choice. You will absorb a view of marriage from somewhere. And if you don't absorb it from the high and holy views of Scripture, then you will absorb it from your culture, which is not biblical. This is a great mystery, and I take it to mean Christ in the church. The eighth pitfall 
of leaders is the danger of compartmentalizing of the leader's life. And we referred to a text like Ephesians 3 where it says a leader should have a good home and be in charge of his children. And, and you might say, wait a minute, what's that got to do with whether I can be a deacon in the church or whether I can be a good elder? And the point is, it has a lot to do with it. The Bible doesn't let you compartmentalize your life. And compartmentalizing life is a sexual danger. Because as you begin to compartmentalize your life and say, here's my ministry and my public life and my demeanor in there. And here's my wife and here's my secretary. And that's a compartment. And it's real sealed off. And gradually, it's totally sealed off. And then it doesn't matter that they don't jive anymore. There has to be something like that happen in a leader's mind who's a Christian. I don't understand it completely, but something like that must happen. He just brackets off this night. Here she is. The wife's at home. My ministry is out there. And it's a compartment sealed off all to itself with no relationship. That must not happen. We must strive against compartmentalizing our lives. View everything, absolutely everything, as woven together by its relationship to the value of the glory of God. Now, look, look at these texts. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How close do you stand to your secretary? Do it to the glory of God. How close do you get to your boss? How do you sit in his office? Do it to the glory of God. Ask yourself, am I sitting in a way that glorifies God? Is the bathing suit that I wear at the lake glorifying to God? It's hard to find one today that glorifies God. And boy, I'll tell you, there are a lot of people in this church who don't even ask that question. They just buy the latest thing no matter how it's cut. That's crazy for men and women today. It used to be just women. Now it's men and women. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every one of you should be able to write an article. How do you drink orange juice to the glory of God? All I'm saying is you ought to be able to obey this text. Whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. You've got to know how to do that. And if you never give any thought to the details of your life and how they relate to God, you live compartmentalized. If you live compartmentalized, you are on your way to destruction. Either lack of integrity in your business world or lack of sexual chastity in your relationships. Life must be whole. It must be whole, all relating to God. Number nine, the pitfall of the sense of being above the necessity of suffering and self-denial. It seems as though as a leader rises in his power and prestige and wealth, usually, he begins to think, well, I can pay somebody to do that, and I certainly don't have to live in that situation, and I can certainly have that in my car, 
and I can certainly live there. And and all of a sudden he he starts to justify his life of immunity from suffering by saying, um, my work is hard. I get a lot of hate mail and I should probably have a good symbolic life of prosperity so that people can see God treats his choice servants well. There's a lot of that out there. Sort of above suffering, not only above accountability, but above suffering and self-denial. And my counter recommendation is never forget the promise through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Never forget that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Develop a biblical theology of futility and suffering, especially from Romans eight seventeen to 30, part of which says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I want you to notice this. I've preached on this before. In fact, I think it was about the second sermon I preached when I came to Bethlehem. I was so concerned that you knew where I stood on this issue of suffering so that if I came to visit you in the hospital, you would know that I didn't think you were there under the judgment of God. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. These Christians, Spirit-led Christians, groan. As we wait for adoption, namely, the redemption of these bodies which are going to die no matter how we pray. They're going to decay. They're going to get weaker and weaker and more and more decrepit. And I'll tell you, I don't think you see many healers making visits to nursing homes to pray. We must have a theology that handles nursing homes and arthritis and cancer and we must remember Jesus when we divine, design a, a leadership style that begins to rise above self-denial. I was given a book for a wedding that I did. I don't think I didn't see Tony Dell and Dale here tonight. Bless their hearts. They gave me this brand new book, which I hold up to you. Elizabeth Elliot has just written a biography of Amy Carmichael. And look at her title. This is just vintage Elizabeth Elliot. There's nobody who has written more profoundly that, that I'm aware of on discipline and self-denial than Elizabeth Elliot. And she gave this, this book the title, A Chance to Die. Dying in the short run. Paul said, I die daily and dying in the end. And I wrote on another version of this that we need to go back and reread some of the biographies of the medieval missionaries like Raymond Lull to the Muslims. When he was 80 years old in Europe, having been kicked out of Tunis because of his preaching, it was all Muslim. He said to himself, why, why should I die in Europe? Why not die preaching the gospel in Tunis? I'm going to die anyway. And he got on a boat and went to Tunis, walked out into public, preached Christ, and they stoned him to death. Now, that's the view of leadership that we need. 
I mean, what is the crazy view of leadership that says, well, after 65, you fish. <laughs> Golf. That's crazy. After 65, look at the freedom to serve. And when you've got to die, why not go someplace where they'll kill you? <laughs> For Jesus. Because the blood of the martyrs is the... Is the, is the seed of the church. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. And you come back to me in 40 years and see whether it's just talk. We're almost done. One more. Giving in to self-pity under the pressures of loneliness and loneliness of leadership. And we talked about how a leader's mind can begin to work like something like this. Let me see if I can find it here and read it to you. That paragraph that I, that imaginary paragraph that I created of what must go through a leader's mind when he's tempted to commit adultery or she is. Nobody else understands my pressures. Nobody else seems to feel for me and my loneliness the way she does. If, if any of them knew what I was going through in this leadership role and at home, they would understand why I need this kind of embrace. I need this kind of unconditional acceptance. That's a catchphrase. I have borne enough of the burden of being everybody's spiritual example. I can't take it anymore. And I don't care if they don't approve. I think that's sort of what happens. You know, I, I love G Gordon MacDonald, and I, and I do not want to pick on him, but since... The last Christianity Today had an interview with him, and I intended to bring it tonight. I tore it out to read you one thing, but you can get it and read it. They asked him why, what happened? And he, all he could say was, there was a point in my ministry, it was a point in my ministry where I was more weary than I ever was in my life and more burdened under the pressures of leadership. And I just wasn't thinking straight. The powers of self-pity are very, very great. And the antidote to self-pity is Christian hedonism. Embrace the essence of Christian hedonism, namely, that no one who suffers the loss of any earthly blessing in the service of Christ will fail to be repaid 100-fold now, Paul said, the Lord stood by me with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, um, the point there is that we must, in the end, fight the power of sexual temptation with a positive addiction. Some of you read the account of a pastor in bondage to lust in Leadership Magazine about five years ago called The Anatomy of Lust. The solution that after 12 years of bondage liberated this man was reading Francois Mariac's The Red and the Black, a novel by a Catholic novelist, a French novelist, and he said the portrayal of purity and holiness in this novel was so beautiful 
so magnificent that for the first time in his life, he felt what he was denying himself at peep shows. What he was doing to his own soul as it shriveled up, capable of only one kind of visceral pleasure. And the windows of his life opened onto the sunset of holiness and the sunrise of purity. And that's what we've got to find. The only way you will succeed in fighting the powers of lust are with the equally strong powers of purity and its alluring beauty, which is why you must be born again. You must have a new heart, new tastes, new affections, and God will help you cultivate those with these tinned guidelines. There is a fight to be fought by the soldiers of the cross, and perhaps we should end with a great hymn of warfare. Jerry, if you'd lead us.